We're starting the teaching this morning with a really deep piece of theology out of a nursery rhyme. <clears throat> you guys remember Jack Spratt? Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. You don't get this everywhere, Michael. Dan, you guys don't get this. You, you can't go just any place and get this. Jack Spratt could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. And so between the both of them, they licked the platter clean. Now, I don't share this this morning because it's good table manners, but because it's this great example of uh, complementarity, complementarity, something that's complementing to one another. Um, you know, Jack doesn't eat fat, his wife doesn't eat lean, so between both of them, everything gets done. So they complement one another. Complementarity is kind of a big word, but it does come from the word to complete, to complete. You know, if we stretch it out and we say something complements another thing, we may not infer that there's anything lacking in the first thing, but that the other thing kind of brings it out or enhances it all the more. Uh, the sense in which I want to look at complementarity this morning is more towards the latter of those. It's the sense in which one thing complements another so that it's kind of fully revealed for what it is in a way that uh, is uh, kind of in the best interest of both parties. Let me explain this just a little bit. Think if you could be in a relationship with someone else that was perfectly complementary to both of you. That is, it was all gain and no loss. It was all gain and no loss. That would be perfectly complementary. If you could be in a relationship, let's say, where you gave perfect submission and you received perfect honor in doing so, it would seem like on one hand you're losing because you give submission, but see, in the losing, you're the beneficiary because you gain honor. Is such a thing possible? And of course it is. And the example that I want to look at this morning is out of John 5. And the example of this perfect complementarity is the relationship between Jesus and his Father. If you remember in the opening passage of John 5, Jesus has been in Jerusalem and he had the audacity to heal a lame man on the Sabbath. And this has stirred up dissension and trouble with the Jewish leaders. And you remember we looked at this Sabbath issue. It wasn't for no reason that the Sabbath was an issue. They had some history in which they had some just and right reasons to be concerned about what did and didn't occur on the Sabbath. But Jesus is explaining himself here this morning to the Jewish leaders. And that's where we're going to pick up. We'll be in verses 17 through 30 this morning. So he's explaining why he healed on the Sabbath. And at verse 17 he says, My father is working until now, that is on the Sabbath, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Forgive me as I comment through this passage as I read, but if someone ever says something silly to you like Jesus never claimed to be God, and you will hear this, just steer them to John 5. The Jews who heard him had no confusion about what he was saying and what it meant. He was making a claim that he was deity. And you know, in our age, we can lose the substance of this sometimes somewhat easily. Remember for that, for the Jewish world, Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's one God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Have no other gods before me. There was no ambivalence on their part. There's one God. 
So when the Jewish hearers hear Jesus saying he's deity, they understand what he's saying. This is a bold, bold claim. This was stated not in a culture like ours in which basically anybody's God is good enough, etc. This was stated to a people who said there's one God, God only, and no other, and have no idols. So if anybody says Jesus never claimed to be God, just steer them to John 5, if nowhere else. Verse 19, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, you know, when Jesus says this, it's amen, amen, verily, verily, depending on your translation. But it means this is truth, no doubt about it. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus here is saying, if you've got a problem with me healing on the Sabbath, you have a problem with the Father because I only do what he does. Verse 20, the father loves the son and he shows him all things that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. The father's going to show the son more works to do so that they will marvel more at the son. Verse 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life. To whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Remember, too, again from the Old Testament for the Jews, remember the uh, interaction between Abraham and uh, God in Genesis 18. Abraham says of God, You're the judge of all the earth. When Jesus says that all judgment is given him by the Father, he's claiming the prerogatives of deity. Verse 23, in order that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, or of a truth, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. If you haven't memorized this, this is one of the key verses in John's Gospel, John 5, 24. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me does not come into judgment, but is passed out of the sphere of death or judgment into the sphere of life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This last phrase, because he is the Son of Man, may be a reference to Daniel 7, that great passage where Daniel sees a vision in which God the Father is giving a man, a Son of Man, authority to rule the earth. Verse 28, Don't marvel at this, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. They'll come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. By the way, this is not a work salvation, which Jesus will certainly make clear later. He says, he finishes at verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There's a ton in this passage that needs to be covered, most of which we won't look at this morning at all, the specifics related to most of this. The one thing I want to look at this morning, though, is the relationship, the complementary relationship between the Father and the Son as it's talked about in this passage. And we'll start with the Father. 
Verse 20 is the key verse as far as the relationship of the Father and the Son. It starts at verse 20, and Jesus says, The Father loves the Son. That's the relationship of the Father to the Son, this complementary relationship. The Father loves the Son. And the love of the Father constrains him, as it were, to do certain things related to his Son. Look at verse 20. Besides the Father loves the Son, the Father loves the Son, and so he shows him all things that he himself is doing. Because the Father loves the Son, he shows Jesus what he's doing. I don't know if you remember way back when we did the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus says, I'm calling you my friends now because I'm telling you what I'm doing. The love of the Father for the Son means that he communicates with his Son and he shows his Son what he's doing. You know, if we love others, typically they know something about us. It's somewhat meaningless if I tell someone I love them, but there's absolutely no criteria for which them to see that. One of the key things the Father says about his love for his son, Jesus, is that he shows him what he's doing. Jesus says, my Father loves me, so he shows me what he's doing. The Father also loves the Son, and he gives the Son out of this love. Look at verse 22. He has given all judgment to the Son. The Father loves the Son, and so he has given to the Son to have life in himself. Verse 26. The Father loves the Son, and so He's given Him authority to execute judgment. Verse 27. The Father loves the Son, so He shows Him, and He gives Him. In fact, following back from John 3.35, if you remember, Jesus said the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son, so He shows Him, and He gives Him. Now, He gives him judgment, he gives him life, he gives him authority because he loves him. But then there's the question, what's the goal of doing these things? Where does this all lead? Look at verse 23. Jesus tells us that out of the love that the Father has for him that produces showing the Son and giving to the Son, he says the reason is in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who doesn't honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The Father does all this for the Son because he wants to heap, as it were, honor on his Son. Now, the Greek term for honor here is timao. It's almost like tomato. It's close. Think of tomato and you're close. And the term means to fix the value of a thing, to establish the price of a commodity, So when Jesus says God's doing all this so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father, if we say, is there any confusion about Jesus' claim to deity, he's saying the Father wants you to value the Son with the same value you place on him, on God the Father. If you place less value on Jesus, you're dishonoring the Father, this passage says. So the Father loves the Son, and out of that love, He shows Him what He's doing. He gives Him things, gives Him authority, gives Him life, because He wants to heap honor on His Son. And that honor is through us. As we honor the Son, we are honoring the Father. That's His goal. This dad wants us to see His Son and honor Him, be pleased with Him. And in so doing, we honor the Father.
So the Father loves the Son. He gives Him. He shows Him so that we can honor Him. What about the Son? If this is complementary, what's the flip side of this relational equation? I've included verse 30 in the passage we're reading this morning. Most commentators do not. I think it's part of the key, though, in the motive behind Jesus' relationship in the way he interacts with his Father. So related to Jesus, we said of the Father, he loves the Son, so he does all this. What's Jesus' motivation? John 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I don't seek my own will. I seek the will of the one who sent me. Jesus wants to honor his Father also. He doesn't do it so much by giving, as it were, to his Father. He does it by submitting to his Father, by not placing his own will above his Father's, but by placing his Father's will above his own. So the Son, Jesus the Son, in this complementary relation, he watches his Father. You know, if you've ever seen little guys, especially, with their dads, they love to follow after Dad and watch what Dad's doing. You know, when I sent my inspection toolbox down in houses, it's a given if there's little boys, they want to come over and check out my toolbox. See, if I'm dad and I've got juniors following me, junior's watching me. He's interested in me. He's got this relationship with me, and he wants to follow me and see what I'm doing. And he wants to do what I'm doing, what dad's doing. That's exactly the thought here. Jesus watches his father, and then he imitates him, as it were. He does Imitation is probably the wrong word theologically. He does what he sees the father doing. He watches dad and then he does the same thing. Verse 19, the son does nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, these things the son does also in like manner. Jesus loves his dad. He wants to honor his dad and so he submits to his father. He watches him. And then he does the same thing. Also, he listens to his father and he seeks the will of the father. Back in verse 30, he says, I can't do anything on my own initiative as I hear. See, he watches to see, but he also listens to hear what his dad is saying. As I hear from my father, that's what I judge. My judgment is just because I don't seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, what motivates Jesus the Son to exercise the judgment and the life and the authority the Father gives him? He's seeking to honor his Father by fulfilling his Father's will. He's seeking the will of the Father. He seeks to honor the Father by fulfilling all his good will. So here's this relationship, this perfectly complementary relationship. The Father loves the Son. So what does he do? shows the Son what he's doing, and gives the Son what he has to give, so that all may honor the Son. The Son turns around, the Son who loves his Father. He submits to his Father. He watches his Father. He listens to his Father, and then he does what his Father's doing, so that his Father may be honored. Perfect complementarity, a perfectly complementary relationship. The Father loves the Son, loves to honor him. The Son loves the Father, loves to submit to him. When the Father honors the Son, the Son submits. When the Son submits, the Father honors. It's a perfect circle, if you will, of love and honor and submission. The Father gains, the Son gains, neither loses in this equation. Now, theologically speaking, uh, 
I want to mention a couple things. The Son, Jesus the Son, as God the Son, is no less God. He's no less powerful than God the Father. He's no less honored than God the Father, even though he submits. His submission does not imply inferiority. And on the Father's part, God the Father is no more God than Jesus. He is no more powerful than Jesus. He has no more honor than Jesus, even though in this relationship, he is the one initiating. He is no, it does not infer his superiority to the Son. This may sound strange, and there's a lot behind we walk delicately when we're talking about God, who he is, and what he's like. We're not talking about the Trinity this morning because the passage is not bringing up the Holy Spirit, but we're really talking about the nature of God and the Trinity. And if you're curious, you can read things like the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, which all treat with these same issues. But this is what Orthodox Christianity has taught, does teach, always has taught, that the Son is no less God because of his role as the one who gives submission and follows the lead of the Father. The Father is no more God than the Son because he's the one who's acting as the authority in the relationship. This becomes incredibly important for a couple of reasons, which we'll look at in just a minute. Um, I'm losing my place, guys. Totally forgot where I'm going here. The Father's directing... Yeah, the difference in their roles. Um, On earth, uh, God has meant us to have this living, uh, active example or illustration of this relationship. Do you know what it is? It's marriage. Yeah, somebody knows. It's marriage. This may sound far-fetched depending on what your marriage looks like or the marriages you've seen. But marriages on earth are supposed to be an illustration of this perfect complementarity that exists in the Trinity, in the Godhead, even though the roles are not the same. So follow this for just a minute. In the marriage vows, typically, a husband promises to serve his wife, the husband who has the role of authority, promises to lay his life down and serve his wife, serve what's in her best interests, and the wife promises to honor and submit, lay her life down, submit, follow the lead of her husband. In God's equation, this isn't supposed to be a loss for either one of them. This is supposed to be a gain. It's supposed to be complementary. Now, when one or both parties don't do their part, it can be a very ugly thing. We take this great image, this great illustration, and it's marred badly. And certainly, that's the case today more often than we would care to think about. But in a good marriage, in a godly marriage, each spouse is seeking the honor and the benefit of the other. And so, it's okay if we fall over each other, so to speak, seeking the honor for the other. That's a good thing, and that's what God's doing. The father's going out of his way to honor his son. And the son's making it his primary goal to honor his father. And in a marriage, we're called to do this same thing. The roles are different. They're not the same. And this is a hang-up for lots of people. If you follow the feminist movement, and this is what I mean about theologically, this becomes very important. 
the feminist movement has a problem, the Christian feminist movement has a problem related to this aspect of the submission of the Son. You see, the Trinity is a living picture, the ultimate picture, that submission does not mean less equal. Jesus loses none of his deity, none of his power, none of his authority, none of the essence of who he is because of his submissive role. He loses none of it. And the Father doesn't have more deity or more essence of authority than the Son because of his position of authority or initiator. And see, this is the picture in marriages. So marriages on earth should be this great living illustration of the relationship, the complementary nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's supposed to be, it's meant for our blessing. It's why it's no accident um, if you want to discredit or dishonor God, certainly one of the key things you can do is dishonor or discredit the living illustration he has set up on earth to, to show forth his complementary relationship within himself. You know, so today we're talking about same-sex unions, and we're talking about kind of abolishing any of the distinctiveness in the role between men and women. These things are from the pit of hell, because what they are, they're going against, if you will, the nature of God himself. God's creation mirrors his essence. And within the Trinity, we have submission and authority and mutual honor, and there's no loss to either party. It's, this is what I mean about perfect complementarity. There's no loss, but the roles are different. That's true in the Trinity, and it's supposed to be true and displayed in marriages. This is one reason why marriages are so important. Just one, but one reason why they are. Marriages are supposed to show forth God's glory in the relationship within the Trinity. And then think of it this way. If you have a great marriage, or if you grow up in a family that has a great marriage, you have this great view of relationships that are different but equal that it's okay for me to submit to someone else because they love me and they honor me. It's okay if I'm the one in authority because I know that I'm here to love and honor and bless the one that I serve in my leadership. There's no downside in God's economy when these things happen. There's no downside in the Trinity. And that's, that's what marriage should be reflecting. Now, to put a point on this, if you're a young woman or young man, let me speak to you for just a second, and you're not married yet. If you know, young ladies, that the role you're called to in marriage is to lovingly follow and submit to and support a husband, what kind of husband should you be looking for? This is a big deal. If you're hooking your star to some young man's wagon, where is he going? What kind of a man is he? What kind of a man is he? See, because your commitment as a Christian wife is to follow your husband's leadership. It's to submit to your husband. Not to be a doormat, but just as the, fa- as the son submits to the father. Your role in marriage is to submit and support and follow your husband's initiative and lead. You know what? Man, you've got to be awfully careful if you think this. Right, Jess? You've got to be careful. I, we, we've talked about this more than I care to tell you with my daughters at home. And you know, if this is the thing we've always told the girls. 
If you meet some young man and you think, gosh, Lord, I wonder if he's the one. You know, just ask yourself this question. Is he a godly leader? Ladies, is he a godly leader? If he's not, mark him off your list because he's not it. He's not it. And I mean godly leader in two components. Godly meaning like Jesus the Son, he says, as a Christian man, my goal in life is to submit my will to the will of my Father, my Heavenly Father, and to follow his lead. My goal in life is to honor my Father. That's the godliness. The leadership means God calls men in marriages to lead. God calls men to lead. If he's a nice guy and he's godly, but he's not willing to lead, don't follow him. If he's going nowhere, don't go nowhere with him. So a godly leader. If you're thinking about marriage and you're wondering, is this the guy? Ask yourself, is he a godly leader? If he is, we're good to go. You can entrust yourself to that kind of a man. If he's going to put God first, guess what, ladies? He'll put you first. He'll lay down his life for you because he's laying down his life for his father already. This is consistency. This is the way it works. Or young men. There's a few in here. If you're thinking about, think of the flip side of this. If your commitment as a husband is to lovingly lead your wife by laying down your life, your desires, your golf game, your hunting trips, for your wife, what kind of a woman do you want to be serving? Think about this. What kind of a woman do you want to be serving? You want to, you want to be serving a godly woman, right? You want to serve someone, lay your life down for someone that you know is going to be glad you're leading and who's going to be supportive of your leadership and who's not going to be telling you how it is and how it shall be forevermore. But you, you want to know that you, you're looking at a woman, Lord, could this be the woman for me? Well, is she a godly follower? That is, is she saying like Jesus, Lord, I want to honor you first. And Lord, I realize in marriage you're calling me to follow and support my husband. If she's not, check her off. Keep looking. Marriage is so important. And guys, if you're unmarried... For some people, I've known so many career singles. Do you know how many have told me that they believe God called them to singleness? Do you know how many? (laughs) Paul talks about a call to being single. I haven't met one. Every adult single I've ever met who's unmarried is telling me they're waiting to get married. They're looking for it. And you know, you've got to be careful. Let's say five years go by, five years later after you thought you'd be married, you know what, you might start feeling desperate. And you might be willing to say, well, he's not very godly, but he's kind of a leader, or she's not very godly, but she might follow me. Don't go there. You know, marriage, because it's kind of the height or the pinnacle of relationships on earth, and is meant to be, marriage can be the greatest blessing, and it can be the worst curse. You know, whatever has the power to bless has the power to curse. So marriage can be heaven on earth. Really, as close as we get. A good marriage can be heaven on earth or it can be a living hell. It can be either. So we approach it with godly trepidation and prayer. 
And we ask ourselves, is that a godly leader? Is she a godly follower? And if you're married, and many of us in, in here are, ask yourself this question. If people look at my role in my marriage, do they see God the Father honoring God the Son? Do they see God the Son submitting and honoring God the Father? If people look at my marriage, do they see a living display of the beauty of the relationship of the Trinity or of the Father and the Son and the Trinity? Do they see that complementarity that God means them to see through my marriage? If they don't, I need to reevaluate. If they don't, I'm marring the picture God's left on earth for people to see that equal doesn't mean the same, that submission doesn't mean doormat, that authority doesn't mean tyrant. Different roles, but love and honor is what guides everything. Love and honor guides it all. Now, the portrait, back to the passage at hand, sort of, the portrait of this complementary nature between the Father and the Son is climaxed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read this, verses 22 through 28. In Adam, Paul says, everyone dies. In Christ, all shall be made alive. You remember Jesus says, I've been given life and authority to give it. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, he's the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. He, the Father, has put all things under the Son's feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted, the Father, who put all things in subjection to him, the Son. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all and in all. In other words, how does history end? What does the timeline on earth, the end, look like? This is it. Jesus comes. Jesus is... God's choice to be King of kings and Lord of lords. Psalm 2 talks about this. Zechariah 14 talks about it. Revelation 19 talks about this. God says, Son, it's yours. Go get it for me. And the Son does. And he abolishes all rule, authority, power. These are probably principally satanic, demonic, spiritual oppositions to God. The Son wipes them out. He claims the universe as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and then he turns around and he gives it to Dad. See, Dad honors the Son. He says, Junior, I'm giving you the universe. And Junior goes and he wins the universe and he says, Dad, I'm giving it back to you. See, the Father's delighting to honor the Son and the Son's delighting to honor the Father. And it's a win, win, win situation. Win for them and win for us. I want to close by talking about a an ugly relationship, an ugly marriage that ended 228 years ago today, sort of. You know, 228 years ago, the founders of this nation found themselves in an ugly marriage, didn't they? In fact, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it was more like, uh, what's, what is it when you don't marry someone? What's the word? Concubine or something, you know. <laughs> anyway, 
You know, here, here were the colonists, right? The Americas. And there's good King George, you know, only George was less than good sometimes, wasn't he? In fact, it's thought by many that good King George actually had a disease that rendered him into periods of insanity at times, which may have explained some of the things he did. But if you remember, initially, the settlements in the Americas, the colonies, it was a great relationship both ways, wasn't it? Because England, boy, materials, know-how, more people, safety, all came from Mother England. And from the colonies, man, they started getting all these new imp- uh, exports from the colonies, all this great stuff. And for a while, it was a win-win, complementary relationship. But, you know, it got less and less so as time went on, of course. So that at the end, the straw that broke the camel's back was, of course, as anybody who's read history knows, it was the Stamp Act, wasn't it? And the Stamp Act had two key elements. We forget one. Let me just, in order... Most of us know that phrase, no taxation without representation, right? Most of us think that the revolution was about taxation representation, and it certainly was a key component. Because remember, if you can tax me and I have absolutely no say, what am I? I'm your slave. I'm your slave. I have no representation. I have no legal recourse before you. You can do anything you want. And the colonists were saying, you know what? We're not willing... King George, to be your slave. That was one thing. No taxation without representation. The other thing, though, and frankly the more important of the two, was that in the Stamp Act, good King George was saying that he was the head of the church in America. And this is the side most people forget. See, the Stamp Act didn't just apply to economic issues. And the stamps weren't stamps that we mail letters with. The Stamp Act was the king's stamp that you paid for, and that was going to go along with all financial transactions. But it didn't stop there. It went into the church. The church had to pay for the king to stamp all their official business. You know why most of these folks that were here had left England and Holland and other places? So that a political tyrant was not the head of the church. These folks were saying Christ is the head of the church, the king is not. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was economic, certainly. It was about taxation. Stan, you'd know this. I don't remember how many of those original signers on the Declaration, they were pastors. And, you know, taxes, all of us pay more taxes than we want to. The pastors were saying the king is not the head of the church, is not and will not be. And that was the motivation for many of them. So what had started as this complementary relationship had devolved. It was ugly. It was all one-sided now. You know, when God calls us into relationship with him, it's not King George saying, come give me what I want and I'm going to tell you how it is. God displays for us in the Father and the Son and the Spirit in other passages, but he displays for us the kind of God he is. See, he loves to honor those he loves. So when God calls us into relationship, he's not calling us as a tyrant. He's calling us as a benevolent father. Or Jesus is calling us as a benevolent husband. There's no loss to this. It's all gain. It's all upside. You know, the best thing we can do is do what Jesus did. 
which is humble ourselves. Peter says it this way in closing in 1 Peter 5. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His conclusion is this, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that he may exalt you at the proper time. You know, when I lose my life, I gain it. The way up is down. Peter says, humble yourselves. Why? You know what? Because when you willingly humble yourselves before your father, he delights to honor you and raise you up. And he closes by saying, casting all your anxiety, your cares, your worries, your problems on him. Why? Because he cares for you. The Father loves the Son. The Father cares, loves us. When we submit to Him, we are entering the ultimate complementary relationship. We submit and we win. We submit and we don't lose. We gain. That's the relationship of the Father with the Son. It's the relationship God calls us into. Let's pray. Father, I'm just struck again and again by the absolute purity of your goodness and that, Lord, you are in uh, strictly theological terms, you are a benevolent tyrant. You rule all and you make no qualms about it, but, Lord, you are ultimately and overflowingly loving. Lord, help us to have the wisdom, if not the fear, to willingly submit to you Knowing, you, knowing that you have only our blessing in store. Lord, help us to love you as we see you honoring your Son. Lord Jesus, help us to submit as you submitted so that we can honor the Father. Lord, thanks that in your economy, whether we're leading or following, whether we're initiating or submitting, there's no loss There's only gain. Help us to be glad to join that happy union, that complementary relationship between the Father and the Son. Lord, might our marriages display your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.